Hi there, thanks for tuning in. It's another week and it's another Zonal Marking podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell and Michael Cox is here. Michael, I hope you're well and I also hope you'll share with me what we're discussing today. I'm very well, thank you, Ali. Today we're going to be chatting about Manchester City. We've been waiting for uh, a while to get uh, our City correspondent Sam Lee on the podcast and uh, yeah, it's been an interesting season tactically for City. Obviously, they're not going to win the league for the first time in uh, what the last three seasons, but I think actually it's been one of the most interesting seasons for them tactically in terms of the systems that Guardiola's used and, and also some of the the ways that they've uh, they've struggled to win so many matches. Plenty to get our teeth into. We have acquired an hour of Sam Lee's time. A busy man, but Sam, it's a joy to welcome you on to the ZM pod for your debut. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And This has been in the post for a while. Um, I don't actually think City have played any games since we first discussed it, given <laughs> the hiatus, but um, plenty of time to think about it and look over everything. So yeah, ready to go. Well, look, despite the hiatus, both of you have been hard at work writing on the Athletic site. Uh, Michael, I'm really enjoying your reconsidered series so far. It feels like it's taken the, the place of that squad numbers or shirt numbers series that was so popular. Uh, could you explain the reconsidered series, both as a concept and, and what you've done so far? It's just uh, looking back at, um, I guess, performances that are generally considered iconic and, and central to a player's career. So the first two I've looked at have been uh, Jack Wilshere's display against Barcelona and then David Beckham's performance against Greece in 2001 where he scored that late free kick. The Beckham piece was interesting because a lot of the reaction on Twitter was saying um, I, I kind of got it both ways I got people saying oh here's a great um, illustration of, of why this Beckham performance was one of the best ever but also people saying oh as I thought here's an article on why that Beckham performance was massively overrated which has been odd so um, yeah it seems like I found the balance usually you only think you found the balance if you're being called biased both ways but uh, on this occasion everyone seems to agree with uh, whatever it was I said but yeah really enjoyable to look back at some of these uh, old games it's a, it's a smashing and original concept I would warn anyone listening who like myself found the Beckham article really sort of pulled back the curtain on what was for me as quite a young very young at that stage quite a formative moment certainly in my England supporting uh, career so just be careful just let yourself be aware of what you're getting into when you uh, take a take a deep dive into into what Coxie's written about that one um all of your articles both of you on the athletic site and app uh, if you haven't subscribed yet to the athletic well you've got to give it a go and you'll get 90 days free if you sign up and support this podcast by heading to theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking all one word that zonal marking you'll get a 90 day free trial and you can head back through the archives uh, these two have done plenty of good work over the course of the season so far and um, we've got a back catalogue of 25 podcasts now and this is the first time we've gone deep on Pep Guardiola which is somewhat of a surprise Remarkable, really, but delighted to have you both on to talk me through this. Um, in homage to our subject, I'm going to be quite intense in my questioning. I'm going to be asking a lot of you. Uh, I want you guys to occupy quite specific zones within this pod, but never the same zone at the same time. So please stay alert as well for some exceptionally quick transitions between topics. Um, let's get going. Uh, Sam, first question to you. Uh, City... At the point of suspension, 25 points behind Liverpool, uh, albeit with a game in hand, which is always important to remember. Uh, it, it, it's true that, that Liverpool's record means that it would have had to have been a hell of a season, a season for the ages from City, even to compete, really. But 
Even so, they have averaged just over two points per game. Last season, they were around 2.6, a, a general one to start. What do you think are the key reasons for, for that drop-off in their own performance and results? Yeah, also in homage to Guardiola, I might ask one thing and drift into other topics, but um, <laughs> I, I will try and keep it succinct. But um, it's a combination of things, really. I think the pressing has been something that's been less effective, whether that's in terms of you know, the energy and the, the basic passion and running behind it or the the organisation and the shape. Um, injury sounds like just an age-old excuse, but, you know, the the long-term and even short-term injuries have, have had an effect on, you know, crucial games. There's been tactical changes that Guardiola's made to make up for those injuries, which I don't think have worked out. Um, you've got players unsuited to certain roles or at least, you know, they've not been able to reach their their previous high levels because they're, they're doing slightly different things and other players around them are doing slightly different things. Um, and then you've got mistakes, basically, good old-fashioned mistakes, um, which are kind of a consequence of everything there. Um, and you know, that's kind of accounted for some of the big early defeats because I think the lead has got so big, I think that's something separate. I think the fact that the, there was a lead and there was a gap to Liverpool so early on in the season... That was because of these things I've just mentioned. And then once they went, you know, 11, 12, 13 points behind Liverpool in like November, December time, a whole kind of atmosphere took over the dressing room combined with the whole Bernardo Silva tweet thing that made them think that basically everything was against them and they'd lost confidence. And the season unraveled after that. But initially in these first few weeks and months of the season, these were the issues. Well, you've, you've touched on many of the subheadings that we're going to be sort of delving a little bit deeper into. Feel free to to drift wherever you want, by the way, uh, as long as you don't get sort of quite passive aggressive with me if I ask you no, a question no, no. that you don't, don't like. That. That, that's the one Guardiola uh, sort of personality trait that I'm hoping to really avoid here. Um, Michael, on a tactical level, what's been notable about City this season for you? Well, I think their use of different formations has been interesting. I mean, last season, particularly during the run-in, it was generally 4-3-3 all the way, which which has obviously generally been Guardiola's preferred formation throughout his time at City. And I guess overall in his career has been a, a pretty consistent um, system he's used. Okay, Bayern Munich, it was often more 4-2-3-1, but I think 4-3-3 is what he's most comfortable with. But there's been, I mean, various stages where they've moved away from that. Early in the campaign, they were using 4-2-3-1 quite a lot with De Bruyne as the number 10, particularly in that game against Tottenham. I remember him... I mean, probably the best individual performance of the season and, and maybe one of the best I've seen in in the Premier League, to be honest. I mean, he just was so effective in that kind of inside right channel. But yeah, definitely playing as the number 10 rather than as, you know, on the right of a three. He had two holding midfielders behind him and was allowed to just go out there and, and have a bit of a free roll and drift around more than you would uh, kind of think. And then there was a, f- a phase where... They were using a system, I wasn't sure whether it was 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3 at times. There was a game against Chelsea. Um, they won 2-1, although went 1-0 down. In, and I must say, I thought they were really poor in the first half. And it was really the game where I kind of had made up my mind they weren't quite going to have enough to, to win the league this year. Um, there's been, as Sam said, there's been some interesting uses of players in different positions. I remember the away... Uh, trip to Crystal Palace where Guardiola used Rodri and Fernandinho as his centre-back pairing. I think that was a, a particularly Guardiola move and obviously um, a specific plan for a game where they knew they were going to dominate possession and, and had to worry about Palace's counter-attacks rather than, you know, any kind of uh, sustained pressure. Um, and then just after Christmas, there was a use of a 3-4-3 uh, where Sheffield United, I remember using that 
particularly effectively against Sheffield United's unusual system. But I think maybe what people will remember the season for in terms of the tactics would be the, the kind of strikerless systems they've played um, away at Manchester United in the first leg of the League Cup semi-final. And then in particular, away at Real Madrid, where they won at the Bernabeu with, I thought, really clever tactical thinking from Guardiola. Um, and I guess that's kind of more what we expect from you know, a manager who pioneered the, the false nine role at Barcelona and uh, at City has, has often used it to great effect. So, yeah, even though there hasn't been the successes of, of the last couple of seasons in the league, um, I've found them really interesting to watch. And Sam, I suppose one of the more obvious things to look at, the sort of top level stats that can point to uh, reasons why City maybe haven't uh, picked up as many points as last season. The defensive record, only the fifth best uh, in the Premier League. Uh, this season, yourself and, and Tom Warville, the athletics analytics guru, went deep on City's pressing on an, on an article on the site the other day and the impact that that has had on their defensive strength and record. Uh, what did you discover when you dug deep into the pressing side of things? Well, yeah, there's there's those kind of numbers which you, which you flagged up and probably a really a really good one that came up in that article was in terms of. I know, I know expected goals aren't ready for everyone, but in terms of like the quality of chances, obviously, you know, Guardiola's always said, not so much about clean sheets, because he always knows that, you know, a team could score a fluke goal or anything or one shot on target. But he's always kind of said, well, you know, they didn't have any corners or they didn't have many shots on goal. You know, they just had one shot and it went over the bar and that was it. So they weren't giving up any many quality chances at all. But this season, um, Tom found out that in terms of um, the quality of chances City have conceded this season... They, they rank 99th out of 100 teams over the last, I think it's five seasons. Um, and only West Ham this season, you know, the kind of open, chaotic West Ham, are, are below City, a lot are worse than City in terms of the, the quality of chances they're giving their, giving their opposition. So that kind of ties into the stats that you were talking about. Um, but hopefully we, we kind of dig into the, the why as well. You know, those numbers are one thing, but why is it happening? You know, what is it? You know, that that could feasibly be the players went to Guardiola in the summer and said, we want all these changes. And Guardiola said no. And then the players down tools. And this is where the issues are coming from. As far as I know, that hasn't happened. It's been, you know, technical, tactical differences or the little things we've already talked about. So teams are playing through City a lot easier. Um there was a change to a, a kind of four-four-two shape off the ball at the start of the season, and when I mentioned those key defeats at the start of the season, that was Norwich in September, in particular, and Wolves at home in October. Um, in that Norwich game, there was a four-four-two off the ball, and it was David Silva going and leading the press with Sergio Aguero. But a mate of mine and a colleague at the Daily Mail, Jack Horn, he wrote a story right back at the start of the season that, as far back as last season, you know Guardiola's. Um, staff had noticed that David Silva's intensity and you know running numbers had dropped off a bit with age, just in terms of in terms of the legs and an effort that he can bring a team. So it's interesting that he would be one of the ones leading the press. And I can't, I've always kind of had my doubts about you know maybe maybe it's too simple, maybe it's oh they they're doing this and they're a bit worse, maybe it's that. But it does seem like there's that's part of it. Um, Guardiola always kind of insisted that he was happy with that. And I've spoken to people around him and they would say, no, no, he's fine. And he's, he's fine with the running. If there's one thing that Guardiola doesn't tolerate, it's people who don't run. Um, and then a couple of days after that, I asked Guardiola in a press conference because I think they were on a run of one win in four games and they just drawn with Shakhtar at home. And in fact, the next day they went and drew at Newcastle. 
Um, and he kind of, he was like, oh, no, I can't explain it to you now. You know, we need a, a board and tactics, like pieces and pens and all this. And the, he goes, the players understand it. That's the most important thing. I was like, oh, go, oh, go on, what is it? But what he was willing to say, and obviously he kept a lot back, but what he was willing to say was in the first couple of seasons when City have pressed the opposition, they were just, the opposition would just hoof it clear. And obviously City want that because they'd worked a lot on the second balls in that first season. They would get the ball back and they would go again and they would be able to sustain an attack. Um, but he was like, now, and he put this down to the quality of the opposition being higher. So he said, you've got Chelsea, you've got Kepa and Zuma and Kovacic and you've got Jorginho and people like that. They're very confident under pressure and they want you to press. And he said the same was the case against Shakhtar that midweek. And I was trying to think, you know, is, is that the case? And then you think about how the Premier League's gone and you've got Brighton, for example. I think City beat Brighton 4-0, but it was a, a much tougher game. And you think Brighton under Potter would probably be more willing to play the ball out from the back than they would under Chris Hutton. So if you've got this change in styles from the other team and the English teams, then I suppose that would be one element. But then I think Guardiola kind of gave the game away in December, just after they'd beaten Leicester. And me and me and Michael had written like a preview article for this because this was like a week after City had really been battered on the counter attack by United, and their big problem was counter attacks because you know they obviously can't sustain this press or they're not organised enough for the counter press. And during this game against United, Gary Neville was commentating, and he said, in terms of sustaining the attacks. He was like, one thing you notice about Man City this season, they were the best for two years at sustaining attacks, but now when they give the ball away, you can just poke it back through them and push it through them. And as he said that, actually De Gea got the ball, gave it to a centre-back, and I think Michael wrote this in his analysis of the game, passed it into midfield, they spread it over to the left, and they ended up with Lingard having the shot that Edison had to save really well. So that was a great example in real time of how they weren't able to sustain these attacks or you know counter-press and get the ball back. And then when they did beat Leicester, actually, Guardiola had said, they changed. They were much more energetic. He actually used the word passive. He said at times that season they'd been passive, but in that game he was like, what a change was, you know, the forward goes and then De Bruyne goes behind him and then someone else goes behind him and they kind of got back that energy and momentum that, you know, not just this City Guardiola team, but all of Guardiola's teams, thinking back to starting at Barca, this, this kind of energy that they've had, they got back to that. So he was kind of admitting at that point that they had been passive in some games. So again, it's a bit of a combination, whether it's the organisation, whether it's the energy, whether it's the shape. There's been a lot of different reasons there why teams have been able to poke their way through City. And in that article, I know I've been going on for a long time now, but in that article, if you do check it out, there are you know there are graphics and there are other examples of how teams are putting together more passes. Their teams' attacks are starting much deeper in their own half and they're able to play up the pitch much further than they have in the last five years. Um, to get a shot away on goal. So there is definitely this problem with City and those are some of the reasons for it. It's funny you mentioned Graham Potter's Brighton there. I, I dare say his Swansea side's performance against Manchester City last season in the FA Cup and, and the way that they, uh, despite being a second-tier club, played through City's press at times and, of course, did, you know, didn't end up being the result that they wanted. I wonder if that was one of the many reasons that would have alerted a team like Brighton to Potter uh, and what he was able to to implement um, in terms of, of that passing style from deep. Um, I suppose personnel is always a huge factor. Uh, we, we talk about managers a lot. Sometimes we focus on individual players, but but most managers tend to toe the line that you know they're only as good as their players to, to some degree. So let's talk about some of the key players in this side, starting with 
two of the Premier League's greatest in in their positions. David Silva uh, is coming up to 10 years with the club and Sergio Aguero at one year fewer. Michael, how crucial are these two to City's side at the moment? How crucial are they to, to Guardiola and his tactics? Yeah, I mean, this is something that me and Sam looked at uh, last week, I think, in another of our joint pieces. I mean, we went through the stats and, and just basically looked at the most prolific combinations of one player providing the assist and, and the other player scoring the goal. So for context, the, the most prolific combination of all time is Frank Lampard setting up Didier Drogba for Chelsea, which has brought 24 goals. And then the the following few players are of particular interest for this podcast, because in second place, it's David Silva assisting Aguero, which is three goals behind Lampard and Drogba. And then two further back from that, you've got De Bruyne setting up Aguero. And uh, I thought these stats were really interesting. I must say, Silva and Aguero to me has always seemed like um, a very obvious partnership. I mean, we know what David Silva does and the way he gets the ball, the kind of positions he receives it and, and the you know, the type of passes he wants to play. Um, and certainly no surprise that he's set up so many goals for Aguero this season. Uh, oh, sorry, th- I'll start that again. Certainly no surprise that he set up so many goals for Aguero throughout their time together. And there's been three this season as well. David Silva hasn't always featured uh, this campaign, but when they're on the pitch together, um, they have, uh, you know, such a good relationship. Uh, I must say De Bruyne and Aguero surprised me a little bit more because I couldn't really remember too many examples of De Bruyne setting up Aguero. So, uh, yeah, we went through and we looked at all the assists they'd played or all the assists De Bruyne had played for Aguero. And it wasn't really the classic situations you'd find. It was more the kind of... um, Either crosses from the right, sometimes set pieces, a surprising number from the left, um, but not so many through balls, which you kind of associate with De Bruyne, but it hasn't always been Aguero on the end of them. So, yeah, just looking at the different patterns of assists, I thought was an interesting way to approach City and, and why Aguero scores so many goals for them. Sam, we, we try where possible to avoid any sort of transfer speculation. It's not really our bag here, but it's pretty unavoidable when talking about David Silva at the moment. As we record, there's a lot of rumblings about a potential departure this summer. Uh, do you think he is definitely leaving the club? Yeah, I think he actually gave an interview on, on Instagram yesterday and he said, when I say something... You know, I carry it out. That's how I feel. I've been in Manchester for 10 years and I've accomplished everything I wanted to. My era ends here, but I'll always have the club in my heart, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, um, I thought, I mean, there, I thought there might have been scope for him to reconsider that. And, you know, maybe with everything that's going on with the virus at the moment, maybe, you know, you, you stay in one of the places he calls home rather than go somewhere else. But um, that was always a possibility, I guess, or maybe it wasn't. But, you know, yeah, to answer your question, it seems like he definitely is leaving. I guess at the at the end of this season, whenever that may be. And Michael, what about a bit more depth into the, the relationship between De Bruyne, who certainly won't be leaving, hopefully for a long time. What about his relationship uh, with Aguero? Yeah, as I say, I mean, those are just a lot more varied than the ones between Silva and Aguero. I mean, I found De Bruyne just absolutely fascinating this season. I think he's been, I mean, as soon as he got to England, he was already a world-class player. I mean, that last season with Wolfsburg, he was just sensational. But I found him particularly interesting this season, one, because of his consistency, which... You know, obviously last season, people forget he was, you know, really, really hampered by injury, barely played 90 minutes throughout the campaign, really. And I think only got one or two assists all season, whereas this time around he's he's challenging Thierry Henry's all-time assist record. I mean, the interesting thing, I think, is is how many different positions he's played. We've come to expect him in the right centre role in a 4-3-3. But as I mentioned before, he's played as a number 10 in a 4-2-3-1. He's also played much deeper in that position. Um, and he's more so than ever, I think he's really started to define this 
role we don't really have a name for, which is not quite a number 10, not quite a right-sided midfielder, not quite an attacker. You know, if the opposition are playing two banks of four, he basically finds the four players to the right of that from City's perspective, plonks himself in the middle of it. And there's just at least three players who are always worried about where he is, nervous about his positioning. And to go back to that game against Tottenham, he was just so elusive and so clever in the way that he found space in that pocket. And I think that's one thing that City have done really well this season. They've usually used their right side of midfielder, whether it's been Bernardo Silva or Riyad Mahrez or Raheem Sterling, to really stretch the play, regardless of whether they're right or left-footed, because, of course, Mahrez and and Bernardo would usually look to come inside, but they've usually stayed near the touchline. And that's increased the, the space in that channel for De Bruyne to dart into. And, yeah, like I say, he hasn't assisted as many Aguero goals as I would have expected from through balls, but I think his, his crossing... Obviously, along with Alexander Arnold in a slightly different way, is, is just the best in the Premier League. And, you know, regardless of the type of striker you have, Aguero is not the kind of player that traditionally thrives on crosses, although I think he is a good header of the ball. Um, yeah, they, they've combined for, I think, six goals this season, which is uh, certainly the most in the Premier League this year. And, uh, like I say, they're five away from the all time record. So, assuming Aguero is there for another, what, season and a bit, you think that they might topple Lampard and Drogba to become the deadliest duo the Premier League has seen. Yeah, Aguero, the common link uh, in this part of the discussion, Sam. You've looked at uh, one specific part of his game, a very strong part of his game, elite even. Uh, His finishing recently, writing an article on the site about this, specifically that hard and high finish that he's more or less trademarked at this point. Yeah, the hard and high finish at the near post. Um, I've also looked a bit more in depth at his general approach um, for when he became you know, the overseas top-scoring Premier League player back in January when he scored a hat-trick. And I think that gave him the most hat-tricks in Premier League history as well. So I had a proper look into it there. I spoke to, at the time, I spoke to Jolien Lescott, who'd played with him, and he talked about how you know, his technique and how he hits the ball through the middle. So even if Aguero may fall over, the ball goes exactly where he wants, whereas Lescott says there's a lot of strikers who maybe they'll stay in control of the of their own body, but the ball will fly wherever. Um spoke to Willie Caballero for that piece and also this hard and high um, finishing piece and the near post thing. And Caballero says it's not so much finishing at the near post all the time. Um, And he went back to what he told me initially, that Aguero does a hell of a lot of research on basically everyone else because I think he's given advice on other strikers to Gabriel Jesus. But obviously where he really takes advantage is defenders and goalkeepers and knowing what they'll do. So, for example, he'll know which way a goalkeeper will approach a one-on-one so, you know, maybe he'll stay up and make himself big or maybe he'll commit himself or, you know, maybe he'll have a weakness down to his left or around by his feet and that kind of stuff. So Caballero was saying Aguero would, you know, kind of tailor his finishes to what he'd learned in that analysis. So there's always this kind of idea that his talent is natural. And, you know, when we talk about him always being in the right position or just knowing where to be in the right place and at the right time, um, that is natural to an extent. And I think in terms of his technique and the way he hits the ball, that's natural. But also there's, on top of that, there's a you know a layer of incredibly hard work. And last week I was speaking to Ned Manua about a couple of other pieces. And you know if these guys are talkative, I always like to get them on other players. And I spoke to him about Aguero, and he's just said he's an absolute nightmare because he's always living in your blind spot. And Aguero gave an interview himself a couple of weeks ago where he said he always plays on the limit of being offside, and he'll hang behind a defender to cause doubts in their mind. And if they stay further back with him, then that gives the midfielders extra space to to advance up the pitch, and you know bigger holes and bigger gaps to work in so yeah basically with Aguero 
a lot of it is natural, but he works incredibly hard. And that also ties into the whole thing about when Guardiola came in and wanted him to change his game. That whole evolution he went through was down to the fact that he was always good enough to score goals, but then he kind of submitted himself to this hard work that he needed to do. And he became a much better all-around player while maintaining those, you know, that level of output. I just want to go back to De Bruyne. Um, what an unbelievable season he was having, uh, has had. And, uh, you know, we're talking about a player that, as Michael said, has played many different roles within the team, all of them at a very high level. He's the sort of player with his creativity and his vision that you associate with having a serious footballing brain. And, and he's playing under Pep Guardiola, who we also recognise as having an elite footballing brain, of course, one of the best ever, perhaps, and is also someone who, over his managerial career, seems to have had a few sort of uh, favourites, if you will, or I suppose projects, in a sense, players that he's really become very, very close to uh, in terms of developing them as footballers. In terms of De Bruyne's footballing brain, and where we are discussing Pep as well here, Sam... uh, are we talking about someone who is on the same sort of level that has this footballing brain that will translate into potentially something quite special later on in a managerial career? Oh, in, in a managerial career, yeah, that's interesting because he's already doing his coaching badges, which everyone gets excited about when a player's still doing their badges when they're still playing. Um, but that that is an interesting one. I think it's because, you know, the Belgium FA said, well, if you start now, then we can fast track you. So there's, there's a bit of that element to it. But he's been doing that during lockdown. So that's an interesting one. But in terms of you know his relationship with Guardiola and the kind of the footballing brain that they, that they share, absolutely. I think it goes back to what Michael was saying about the player that left the Bundesliga and left Wolfsburg. He was already world class and he had a very good first season at City. I remember him scoring late goals and just generally looking you know, good and, and threatening. But he's taken his game... To such a to such a new level under Guardiola, um, in that Players Tribune article, he said, you know, Guardiola sat him down and said, look, you could easily be one of the top five players in the world. And De Bruyne said that was a bit of a masterstroke because he wanted to go and prove him right rather than prove him wrong. He wanted to kind of live up to that expectation. And then there was a book written last season by a couple of Catalan journalists I know well um, that they they did it a couple of seasons ago in Spanish. They updated it then in English. They've done a lot of interviews with basically all of Guardiola's staff, all of the players, to paint this picture of how they've. Like implemented this success in Manchester, um, and Arteta gave an interview saying, "You know, they've they've managed to refine his game. He's got now this picture of the game. You know, he's got these gears he can work through. These six gears, I think he said it was, and he he now knows how to control a game. He's slow it down, speed it up. Whereas, like I say, going back to that Wolfsburg season and his first season at City, he probably didn't have that. But since working with Guardiola and responding to kind of the goals that Guardiola set him." And obviously his tactical understanding and his technical ability as well, he has, you know, become, I would say he probably is one of the top five players in the world at the moment. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, amazing bit in the book Pep Confidential, uh, where uh, Guardiola is managing Bayern Munich and Pierre-Emile Hoiberg, who we now know as a Southampton central midfield player, was a young player at, at Munich at the time at Bayern. And he was identified as, as Guardiola's sort of protégé. And it's fascinating reading how he... Uh, how he approaches that sort of relationship and and the intensity with which he he takes on these sort of mini projects within uh, a squad. Uh, there's been plenty of, of speculation, Michael, about Leroy Sane all season, really, but more than ever at the moment, uh, a potential move to Bayern Munich in the offing. We are led to believe, anyway. Uh, he was injured in the Community Shield and hasn't played a minute in the first team since. Uh, how much do you think City have missed him? Yeah, I think they have actually. And I must say, Sane was a player who it took me a while to really appreciate how valuable he was to City. 
I think individually, sometimes he can look a bit simple, a little bit straightforward. He's obviously very quick and, and good at finishing across the goalkeeper. But, you know, compared to some other City players, he's not one that I particularly enjoyed watching. But I think he was so important for the shape. Um, he provided that width down the left, which they haven't really got from anyone else. I know that they've tried to find that in a different way from left back with, with Benjamin Mendy, who has never really convinced for City. Certainly, I don't think he's convinced Guardiola. And I just think that, you know, when Sané was there and Sterling was on the opposite flank, they had such a kind of obvious structure. You know, they, I think Sané had a really good relationship with two different players. One was uh, De Bruyne, because De Bruyne's kind of long arcing balls around the defence were just perfect for, for Sané running onto them. There, there were three or four goals in, in City's first title winning campaign that I think almost felt unstoppable because of the quality of the pass and, and the speed of Sané. And he was also so good at combining in behind the opposition with with Sterling. We wouldn't really talk about two wingers having a good relationship, but they scored so many goals, usually just tap-ins at the far post. But obviously there was so much method behind how they've got how they had got into those positions in the first place. So yeah, even though I think, you know, you look at the players who have replaced him and it's effectively been the likes of Bernardo Silva uh, and Riyad Mahrez on the opposite flank. I think they've done a good job individually, but I just think for the the style that uh, that Sané offers, it was so important to the way City played. And, you know, it looks like we're not going to see him again in a City shirt, which I think is uh, a bit of a blow. And, and I do wonder really how they will look to replace the qualities that he has brought. One of his attacking colleagues you mentioned there, Raheem Sterling, has uh, had, a, I suppose, a bit of an up and down season, although we're, we are holding him to exceptionally high standards. Uh, it was a very hot start, of course, at the beginning of the campaign. I think five goals in his first three league games. Uh, Sam, from a tactical perspective and, and City's general play and how it looks with various players in various roles, I'm interested to know, is there a difference, do you think, between Sterling on the left side of a City attack and Sterling on the right side of a City attack? And this is really interesting. and I like how basically everything we're talking about here ties into my initial point about how there's so many different reasons for what's gone <laughs> yeah. on with City this season. And even when Michael mentioned earlier about the way that De Bruyne exploit and find spaces on the right-hand side and how City have been really good at that. They've not done that on the left whatsoever. Um, that ties into what he was just saying about Sane. Um, I've written an article about that trademark Man City goal of getting in behind. And, you know, I kind of split that into two parts, two massive parts. It was quite long and heavy, to be fair. But if that's your bag, then I think you'll enjoy it. Um, the first part was how they did that. And the second part is why they're not doing it anymore. And obviously Sane, you know, in short, basically, it's because Sane is not running in behind. But if you consider the fact that David Silva, a lot of people would say, is not the player he once was, and you kind of draw a correlation between, well, he's 34, 33, 34, are his legs going? Or is it just the fact that Sane's not been there? So this whole left-sided triangle they would get going would usually involve the left-back and City's left-backs this season have basically been shocking. They've got three of them and none of them can do the job. And I'm not normally that blunt about players, but that's just how it is. You've got to have a relationship with a left-back. Sane usually, and we'll get on to Sterling in a minute, um, the defensive midfielder and obviously Rodri, and Rodri's been a huge part, which we may or may not get time to, to go into. And Laporte, and Laporte, it, it, was, it was actually, the point was made to me when I was asking about just things being different at City. Just the, the pass into 
David Silva's feet from defence should ideally be played with a left foot. But without Laporte, who can play that pass and play it really well, they haven't actually got anybody who can play the ball left-footed anyway. So that makes a, a, a slight difference. So basically, in terms of how Silva's affected, everybody around him, apart from Aguero, who's basically the only mainstay, everyone around him in that little network is completely different. It's just everything's a little off. So when Michael was talking about how they've used the right-hand side really well, that also ties into the fact that we talked about Aguero and Silva, uh, sorry, Aguero and De Bruyne, because they're basically the only two players who've been consistently good this season because they've still been able to do what they've been doing. Um, even if it's just between them two. On the left-hand side, is completely different. And then Sterling, yeah, I think he's kind of he's kind of suffered for that, I think, because obviously he likes to come inside. But now you've got no Sane. So it, even at the end of last season, to go back to your question, is he is he better on the left or on the right? I don't think it matters. I think he can play both very capably. And the, the obvious example of that is the end of last season when he played on the left for the, the, the last few games, you know, I don't know, the last 14 games that they won in, won in a row. Sterling played most of those on the left. But a little difference there is Sane could play the odd game or he could come on as a sub, which gives the opposition a little bit to think about. Oh, you know, are we going to be able to defend wide against this guy or are we going to have to funnel him down the middle? We don't know. We don't know what we're going to be facing with. It could be changed up and, you know, City had different options. Um, this season, it's just Sterling. They know where he's going to go. Um, teams have been defending, you know, 10 men in the box. Um, I've Again, I did another article on Sterling, which was quite lengthy, um, really kind of detailed looking at his problems. And he has been able to get in behind at times this season, but, you know, either other people have missed the chances or whatever. But often, the main difference between this season and last season is City would be able to work that like a one-two or a quick exchange of passes on the left and, and get him in behind and he'd be able to run free. But this season, teams have just been prepared for him. They know it's going to be him. They know it's not going to be Sane. Um, they've got a defensive midfielder who's either dropping off behind the centre-back to cover the run. So they kind of got, they kind of worked out City's trigger, which is a part of this trademark article I wrote. As soon as they pass it square, the defence push up, obviously, but then City run in behind. And as soon as they play the ball in behind, you've got the defenders going out toward, away from goal, City going towards goal, and it makes their job so much easier. I think defences have wised up to that a little bit. And now you've got defenders, they're not pushing out, so there's less space to work in. And if you've got five at the back, you've got an extra centre-back who can just stay there and stay in that passing lane and the ball's not getting to Sterling or you've got a defensive midfielder who's doing it. And in this article I wrote probably in February when he was really having a bad time, we highlight that quite a lot. And I think, again, you know, kind of as I mentioned with City as a team, the start of the season, a few things weren't working and then I kind of snowballed and snowballed and the confidence went and it affected them in other games. That's happened with Sterling, I think. Um, he's basically got to the stage where December and in particularly in... Uh, January and February, he was missing an awful lot of chances because I think he was kind of maybe, maybe I'm playing, you know, maybe I'm kind of taking a bit of a leap here, but I think he'd been so used to being free and having, you know, the opportunities and things going well, he got so kind of bogged down in these difficult games where he's just being kicked or blocked off or whatever. And I think that affected his confidence. And then he missed a couple of chances in one game and then he missed a couple in another. And it basically, he really did really did struggle to the point where a lot of City fans were like, we need to get this guy out of the team. But part of the article I wrote was, well, he's still doing everything Guardiola would want. He's still running so hard. He's making the right runs. He's defending from the front. He's doing everything that Guardiola would want. But 
he's just not scoring. So Guardiola is going to keep him in the team. And the other part of that is, of course, there's nobody else who can play on the left wing for City. It's just Sterling. You know, Sane is not there. And Bernardo Silva's left-footed. But his qualities, they don't like him there. They prefer him on the right-hand side so he can cut in and you make those spaces Michael was talking about. And again, I appreciate that's another really long answer, but I hope it was kind of detailed and linear enough to try and explain all these little problems that might just be small individually but then when you think you know city's whole game plan is so interconnected that you got one problem with david silva you've you then got problems with the players around him or vice versa and you end up in a position where you know raheem sterling has gone from one of the most consistent lethal players in the premier league over two and a half seasons is now you know completely tailed off you know these are the reasons for that all these little interconnections and it goes back to what i was saying with the injuries not just sane but also laporte and it, it kind of chucks up lots of little questions uh, to do with recruitment and to do with the summer transfer window and how that might look for Man City. So, you know, uh, based on what we've said just on this podcast alone, might be looking for a surely a left-footed centre-back, the left-back area you think is quite a big issue. Um, maybe some players slightly better suited to, to, to that intense press and able to implement that sort of style. I, I'm kind of just spitballing here. What do you think the priorities will be? It kind of feels like this could be quite a busy summer in the transfer market for City. Well, yeah, well, that was the plan. That was the plan before the FFP ban and that was the plan before coronavirus. I think they wanted at least five players and that was just as much as anything just to kind of keep things fresh because if Guardiola's going to stay, then he, you know, he needs to... And he said this on record. He needs to know that his players are willing to to go again, basically, to have the energy to do what he wants and have the hunger to go and win titles. And obviously, City want to keep him for as long as possible. So the best way to do that is through the transfer market. I think City now are a bit more realistic about the FFP situation. And I think in terms of their transfer plans, they're thinking, this could happen. Even if it doesn't, we're going to plan in case it is going to happen. So they've made plans and they've approached players and tried to work out what they're going to do based on the fact that they're going to get a transfer ban. Sorry, not a transfer ban, a Champions League ban. Um, so I think they're still confident they're going to still be able to buy players, but I don't think they're going to be able to buy quite as many as they'd wanted. I think they're going to look to lean on uh, swap deals a lot more, as a lot of top European clubs are. Um, but they're going to have to strengthen the centre-backs because the, probably the one miss they did last summer was they didn't get a centre-back after Maguire decided to go to United and you know City didn't want to pay the money for that and then they couldn't get another one, another centre-back after that. So they need a centre-back, not just to replace company, but to replace effectively the Maguire type they didn't get. Um, they need a left-back as well and they need a replacement for Sane. So if, if, they, if they've gone from five to three players, for argument's sake, those are the positions. But there's so many different things with coronavirus budgets and, and FFP bans and all sorts. It is difficult. But I don't have names. Normally at this time of year, I like to have names. But I do know that they are, you know, they're still kind of relatively confident that whatever happens, they will be able to, to strengthen the team. Michael, how confident, based on their last few years of recruitment since Guardiola's arrived and, and the team behind the scenes, how confident would you be in their ability to replace and refresh, uh, you know, in the same way that let's say, again, holding them to high standards, but in the same way that Liverpool's recruitment over the last three to five years gets a, a lot of rightful praise. Yeah, you have to say that they're, they're struggling a little bit compared to Liverpool, who have made so many really good signings. I mean, the sense I get with City is they tend to slightly stand still after they win the league. I think that happened after uh, 2012 and 2014. They went back very quickly. This time has been different in the, in the sense they've retained their, their league title, obviously. But when you look at the signings, I mean, Mahrez has, has done well, I think. I, I'm not quite sure he's been on the level that he was at at, at, uh, at Leicester, but I think he's been a decent addition. But, you know, the signings in the last couple of years, I mean, 
I look in particular um Joao Cancelo, who, who I've always seen as a, a steady enough fullback and and nothing more than that. I was surprised that they put so much emphasis upon going for him. I haven't been particularly impressed by him this season. I think he's done okay. Rodri, um, I think he's probably one for the future. Um, but for now, I think it's fair to say that he's been a bit of a downgrade on Fernandinho in that holding midfield role. Angelino was obviously coming back to the club and, and has been shipped out. I didn't really see why they were putting much faith in him. So, yeah, you, you look back at the last couple of seasons and there is a lack of real clear improvements. I mean, I must say, I was looking through the list of all the players they've signed over the last three years. And the one that stood out for me, and this might excite you, Ali, was a, a guy, young teenager by the name of Liam Delap, who is, oh, yeah. I can confirm, the son of Rory Delap. Although in every interview he does, he's constantly keen to stress that no, he doesn't have a long throw uh, mm. in his locker, which he's is a great good as well, by all accounts. Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, I'm disappointed to hear that he, he's actually a really good player rather than just someone who can hurl it into the box because I think that is one of the few things we haven't really seen from cities, uh, from Guardiola's City, you know, a, a real long throw specialist. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we know that a lot can happen between the ages of, of 17 and establishing yourself as a, as, a, as a pro at the very top of the game, but certainly at, at youth level. Uh, Delap, Liam Delap, that is not Rory Delap. Uh, is certainly looks sort of quite literally at times head and shoulders above his his peers in his age group. Uh, Sam, before we let you go, I think it, it's best to round off what we hope is a wide ranging discussion of of where City are at and and all different facets of the club. Um, just by touching on the Champions League ban, um, what is the the situation there for those who aren't following things quite as closely as you? And how is that affecting or how has that affected City's preparation for next season? Yeah, okay. So obviously they've been banned from the Champions League for two years and they've quickly uh, announced their intention to take that to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. We found out on Tuesday that that hearing will be held over three days in June, 8th, 9th and 10th of June. Um that's kind of not unprecedented, but it's very rare for Cass hearings to take that long. I think, according to Matt Slater, our colleague at the Athletic, he said the only one he can remember longer than that was the Cast uh, Semenya um, case. So you can imagine, you know, how kind of complicated this is going to be. Um, that said, spoken to a few people, and I guess what people want to know listening to this is how quickly we'll get an answer, whether you're a City fan or maybe a fan of Man United or Sheffield United or one of these teams that could get into the Champions League or the Europa League if City aren't allowed in it. Um, it kind of depends case by case, but if, if this ban is upheld for one season or two, we're kind of thinking based on precedence in the other Champions League and World Cup hearings and Olympic Games hearings, there should, despite it being a three-day hearing, there should be an announcement of the decision without the full written reasons um, within a few weeks of that. So maybe end of June, possibly July, we'll be looking at a, um, an outcome there. Um, and then that would obviously allow teams to start preparing for the Champions League. As far as, yeah, as far as City are preparing for next season, like I say, it is, maybe in a convoluted way because maybe it's quite convoluted how they've had to 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 do their plans but I think they've kind of I'm, I'm guessing a little here but I think scale back what they did want to do because like I said they did want to get five in I think they now realise that may not be possible um, if you put the possible Champions League ban in then you, you're obviously thinking of attracting certain players and that might get harder but like I say I think they're they're confident that whoever they are they do want is ready to come even if they've got a Champions League ban um, they've factored in the the budget that may be hit as well 
not just with the lack of Champions League revenue, which we've done an article on and the Athletic on Wednesday that you can look at in terms of the money City might lose through that. And obviously with the pandemic as well, they've done all those sums and they're still confident of getting in a couple of players to to challenge again next season. So it has had a big factor on what they're trying to do. But um, again, if I can plug another article, Cheeky Bagiristan, their director of football, is a very switched on guy. Um, I've wrote about him a couple of weeks ago, uh, going back to his time at Barcelona, you know, how he was in charge of putting Guardiola in at the time, but even building a great Barcelona team before that under Frank Rijkaard. And he was one of the driving forces behind getting rid of Ronaldinho at the time and all this kind of thing. He's very switched on. So even more than a month ago, he'd gone round to all the agencies and agents that City and he normally works with and said, this is how we think the market's going to look. This is what we think might happen with City. This is what we think might happen with other clubs. This is what we're going to do. So in terms of while, you know, at a time when everyone was wondering what's football going to look like during this coronavirus and, and beyond, he was speaking to all those agents and footballers and people that matter saying, this is our plan, this is how it's going to go. So I can't give you any names, unfortunately, but kind of maybe reassurance to City fans or maybe maybe other fans will be impressed by, you know, how detailed this guy is and how switched on this guy is. They kind of, you know, we might not know what's going on, but they've got a, a good idea. Oh, I think a, a cheeky plug for an article about Cheeky is absolutely acceptable. So thank you, Sam. We could not have done the zonal marking Guardiola Manchester City episode without you. That's why we've waited all this time to book you in. So thank you so much for, for giving us your time and, and all of your expertise as well. It's much appreciated. Yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed it. And I'm, there's probably enough for a part two. Oh, absolutely. We are constantly coming up with new topics for the future of the podcast. So we will certainly be thinking of, of other ways to, to bring you on and get you involved. Uh, we're very grateful to all of you who are tuning in uh, during this tough time. Please make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast. Also be aware that The Athletic has a whole host of other podcasts to explore. Uh, the Football Clichés podcast by Adam Hurry, to name but one. Uh, all the podcasts are free on all podcast platforms, but they're all also available ad-free to subscribers of the Athletic site and app. If that's not you, but you'd like to give The Athletic a go, there is a 90-day free trial, which you can receive if you sign up at theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking. You'll be supporting the podcast and you will get access to the whole archive and all the goodness that The Athletic has to offer. So thank you for joining us this week. Please make sure you do so again next week uh, for another episode of the Zonal Marking podcast brought to you by The Athletic.